There's a deep connection in our readings today between Jesus's death and resurrection and our response of repentance. The first reading says, but God has thus brought to fulfillment what he had announced beforehand through the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be wiped away. Then our gospel, the same sort of pattern, fulfillment of the scriptures of the death and resurrection and the call to repentance. Jesus says that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name. It's striking to me that the scriptures link the fulfillment of the prophecies and the law of Moses of Jesus' death and resurrection with the response of repentance. One could think it could be a response of love, seeing this great work of Jesus dying on the cross and fulfillment of what God had prepared beforehand, seeing this brought to completion Love would be my first guess of an emotion or something arising within us that leads to greater love of God and glorifying him and worshiping him. And yet that's not what our scriptures say. It's repentance is the response to seeing the fulfillment of Jesus' death and resurrection and the scriptures. I think this is for three particular reasons. The first reason is to see the great love God has for us. Repentance welling up within us, seeing our great God sacrificing himself for our sake on the cross does lead us to love. And that response of love does make us desire to make us better. It, it makes us want to correspond with this great act of love. When we have been so loved by Jesus Christ, so loved by God, then our natural tendency would be to try to do better by him, to turn from our sins and to try to love him back. Secondly, our sins put him to death when he paid our debt of sin. So another reason that repentance arises within our hearts is because this isn't only an act of love, it's also an act that pays for all the sins that we've committed. It was from our sins that we placed him on the cross And out of love, he willingly accepted the cross so that we may be forever freed from our sins. So that idea of guilt and sorrow for sins is a natural consequence of the death of Christ. And the third reason why repentance is the natural progression from the fulfillment of death and resurrection in the scriptures to repentance, the third reason for that is hope. When we know that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, we know that he truly is sovereign over everything. If he can raise someone from the dead, not just resuscitate, this is not the old bodily life of Lazarus who would die again even once he is raised from the dead. This is a whole new existence. If God can bring about an entire new existence, a bodily and spiritual life, raise us up anew, then that transformation runs so deep that it gives us hope that we can actually be forgiven of our sins. 
That's a meaningful thing. If God can raise someone from the dead and transform and glorify the body as such, that's incredible. He truly is sovereign. Our sins truly are forgiven. Now, it's interesting. One of my professors in seminary, he was formerly a Protestant pastor, and he had converted. He was actually decent friends with Scott Hahn, and he was instrumental in this man's conversion. He was a professor, and he said one of the things that compelled him on the road to conversion was in Protestantism, he had always preached baptism. Baptism is huge. It is for us, too. Baptism is life-changing. That's the thing that allows us to receive the grace of adoption, to wipe away all of our sins, to live as a new creation, to be given the gifts and power of the Holy Spirit, to actually live in accord with God's love. That's an incredible thing. But what he found as a pastor was he would get people to the baptismal font. He'd get them to repentance and to be washed clean of sin. But people were frustrated because they kept returning to their old way of life. They kept returning to their old sins. And as a Protestant minister, he's thinking to himself, this should be it. There is nothing after baptism. This is the end-all, be-all. This should take care of everything. One thing that Protestant doesn't have, Protestantism does not have, is the entire social and moral teaching that the church does. This coherent moral system, this great understanding of what the human person is, the importance of virtue in working in accord with grace. It's not grace alone. There's effort we need to put forth. Yes, God initiates this with grace, but there's an entire moral life. There's these virtues that help us combat these sins. So that's one thing that was lacking in the Protestant tradition he was coming from. But the other aspect is all the grace. What he found in Catholicism that really brought this repentance to perfection were the sacraments of the Eucharist and the sacraments of confession. Those sacraments promised there is remedy even if we sin after baptism. As St. John writes in his letter today, he says, I'm writing this that you may not sin, but even if you do sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who is expiation for our sins. There's something more after baptism. Baptism is the entry point, but it's not the end. Our response to Jesus' death and resurrection in perfect fulfillment of the scriptures ought to be repentance. But I don't know about you, but certainly for me, repentance is difficult, and it doesn't seem to to last a long, long time. In fact, even looking at my own confessions that I make to other priests, I see a pattern. I don't know if this is your experience, but I seem to see that I say the same things in the confessional. I don't know if that's your experience. It's certainly my experience. Now, one wise priest said to me, you're saying the same things over and over in the confessional? What, you want new sins? I said, well, I get it. Okay, I get it. But St. Paul tells us this connection between the Eucharist as a great remedy 
for whatever we may be struggling with in our repentance. He says in 1 Corinthians, no temptation has overcome you that, you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape, the exodus, the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So he writes this line, and it seems to stop there. But just two verses later, he alludes to what this way of escape is, that we're not tempted beyond our strength. Two verses later, he says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So what may be lost on some is made apparent to us as Catholics. We see that connection. St. Paul is talking about this struggle, this temptation, this test of endurance, and that God never tests us, never lets us be tested beyond our strength, but he gives us the way out. Well, what is the way out? It's the Eucharist. It's the life of grace. We cannot do this without him. So yes, our response to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is truly repentance. But if you're like me and you find that your repentance can wane over time and temptation can be difficult, God also gives us the way of escape through the sacrament of the Eucharist. He even alludes to this with the road to Emmaus. He reveals himself not only in the Paschal Mystery, which chiefly baptism draws its meaning from. But the two disciples recounted what had taken place on the way and how Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's where our advocate is found. That's where our help is found. It's absolutely essential for us, this life of grace. We cannot do it without him. And one spiritual note, it can be discouraging to be struggling with the same sin for a long period of time. But I want to bring to our attention that doesn't mean, even if frequency is similar, that doesn't mean that there's zero spiritual growth. So has anyone here done bench press before? A few people. I have. I know it doesn't seem like that, but um, there's some seminarians who took pity on me and said, well, James, let's get you into the weight training room and we'll, we'll build some muscle mass. And I said, fine. So anyways, bench press. When you do the bench press, it's important to have another person as a spotter, right? You know this? some more or less. Well, the spotter's job is important, right? You don't want the barbell to just crush you. But also there's another role to the spotter. And it's a super important role, but usually goes unnoticed. At the end of the reps, when you're not able to get the weight all the way up, the best way to build muscle fast, to gain the fastest muscle mass in, in the quickest amount of time is to have your spotter, you have to finish those reps. And if you can't do it on your own strength, you need just a little bit of help. So the spotter's job is to apply maybe just five pounds of pressure with two fingers so he's not taking it away from you, just five pounds of pressure on that barbell so you can get it up all the way with as much strength as you have. 
to completely deplete your muscle strength. It's literally tearing the muscle so it can grow back even stronger. That's the point of a spotter, not just to save you from crushing your neck, but also those last reps to get you to build the most spiritual strength. I think sometimes we forget that God doesn't desire solely sinlessness from us. He desires something more than sinlessness. He desires our perfection. He desires that we love more. He desires that our freedom and capacity to do great things is strengthened. Our virtue grows. If he just picked up the barbell and removed it from us, taking away this temptation or trial, this whatever it may be, we would never grow in strength. He's not aiming at sinlessness itself. Yes, it would be great if we never sinned again. But if we didn't grow with God's grace, the way that he helps us, he doesn't want to remove all of our sufferings from us. He wants us to grow in our capacity to love, which can only be done when we're stretched. And we have to use every last muscle in our spiritual souls, in our, in our bodies. It's stretching us to the limit. It's not God abandoning us to this trial. It's real spiritual growth helping with his little bit of help. It's that real spiritual growth every time we struggle. So we don't notice the difference, but it's there. He provides less and less help, so it's more and more virtue. He always gives us enough grace to say no to whatever temptation, and yet he also allows us to grow that spiritual muscle. Does that make sense? This was a game changer for me in the spiritual life when I found out about this, because otherwise it can be kind of demoralizing. But to know that we're growing spiritually, even if we're struggling with the same frequency, that's a powerful thing. I want to end with this quote from St. John Vianney, a great patron of all priests and a patron of mine, encouraging the more frequent reception of confession and the Eucharist. This is what he says. Not everyone who frequently partakes of confession and the Eucharist becomes a saint. But the saints are always taken from among those who do.